As you know, our, our focus this semester is on how do we see Jesus in the Old Testament? Where do we see Jesus in the Old Testament? And I think sometimes we get derailed or sidetracked by questions which aren't necessarily unimportant, but they're not necessarily the main thrust or focus of the passage. Questions of, well, how did this happen and this happened, and do you really believe this happened? And I believe the Bible is God's word, and it's true. And, um, but I also believe it's important that we get the focus and the main point. And um, when you get to the Noah story, which begins in chapter 6, really, uh, yeah, it, really at the very end of chapter 5, there's a little... There's like one or two verses, and then it, the story is really six, seven, eight, nine. We can't really talk about four chapters uh, without having to cut some stuff out. We have to cut some stuff out. But I think that it's actually helpful sometimes to look at bigger sections of Scripture to see um, themes that go through there and to get the big picture. Now, you remember last week we talked about um, the creation, really about the fall, and about the first preaching of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, where God says, as he's cursing the snake, cursing the serpent, that I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent. And what I told you is the rest of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is all about how is God going to keep that promise that one day through the seed line of the woman... Because in Hebrew, sperm and seed are the same word. Do you, do you know this? Do you understand this? So it's saying like through the, through the seed line, through this inheritance line, um, is going to come one one day that will crush the head of the serpent. How is God going to keep that promise? And really the dramatic tension of the Old Testament is, is all about that promise and whether God will stay true to that promise. And I said to you that the two main threats to that promise are the external enemies So the Philistines aren't just about genocide and wiping out Israel as a nation. Uh, Really, the enemies of God's people are also a threat to God's purposes and to God's promise coming true. If Israel and the seed line is wiped out, then Messiah does not come and Christ does not come. So it's a big deal whether God's going to keep this promise. The other threat to that promise is man's sin. And so in Genesis 3.15, we get this promise. And then in the very next chapter, we find out how quickly things are going to deteriorate. Now that sin is in the world, in the very next chapter, brother kills brother. Cain kills Abel. And things deteriorate very quickly. The next chapter, Genesis chapter 5, is sometimes referred to as the death chapter. Because it's, it basically is a, is a series of statements that go like this. So-and-so lived so many years, and then he died. So-and-so lived so many years, and then he died. And that constant refrain, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. Yet, even though death is reigning, which is something Paul, the Apostle Paul will pick up in Romans 5, death is reigning. There are two intriguing little statements buried in the midst of this death chapter that I want to at least point out to you. One is in verse 24, where it mentions a guy named Enoch. And it's all this whole, this whole pattern. So-and-so lived so many years, and then he died. So-and-so lived so many years, and he died. And then in verse 24, you get to this. Enoch walked with God, then he was no more, because God took him away. And it's one of those lines where you're like, okay, what does that mean? What does it mean, took him away? Uh, explain that. 
There's no explanation. Just this intriguing possibility that death is not the only possible ending. So in the midst of this death chapter, a glimmer of hope. And then near the, at the end of it, in verse 28, we find this. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Noah's name means comfort. And here it's interesting, the one line about Noah before we get into the full story here in chapter 6 is that his father prophesies prophesies that he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord is cursed. You see how it's tying into the big picture story. It's not even being very subtle. The, the painful toil that's part of the curse, somehow this one, Noah, will bring comfort, reprieve, grace in the midst of of a world broken by sin, in the midst of a life of painful toil because sin has entered the world, this one, Noah, will be a beacon of light, will be a comfort. And then we come to Genesis chapter 6, and now we're going to read um, some scripture here. We're not going to read every verse. There'll be places where I skip over stuff. So it might be easier to follow from the printed page than the Bible, but if you want to follow with your Bible, you can do that too. I'll hopefully help you to stay with us. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. I'll just say this. Um, I think what's being talked about there, sons of God and daughters of men, has to do with two different seed lines. The seed line of those who are believers in God and the daughters of men being people who are not believers in God. I don't think it's talking about angelic beings and mere human beings. And I know if Brent Sanderson was here, he might differ with me about the Nephilim, but we're not going to get into that. Um, we're also not going to go into where there are dinosaurs walking around. I, there's a lot of questions you can ask me. Um, you can come and ask Saturday night. But right now, um, I think in line with the way Genesis 3.15 has set up these two contrasting lines, who are, you, who are you committed to? Are you connected to the seed line of the Messiah or the seed line of the serpent? And that contrast you'll see over and over again. I think that's what's going on here. Um, then verse 3. Then the Lord said, because he doesn't seem to be um, encouraged about this marrying, my spirit will not contend with man or mankind forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. That's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. Men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. 
Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And then God tells him to build an ark and tells him exactly how to build it. And then God explains, we'll pick up down at verse 17. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And so then the story goes on. Noah builds the ark. The animals get in it, all the people get in it, the flood comes, wipes out everything, and Noah, his family, and all the pairs of animals in the ark are saved. We pick up the story now down at chapter 8. Chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. And then the story goes on. Finally, it's time to come out of the ark, and we pick up the story down in verse 15. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the earth, came out of the ark one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. That means ritually clean, by the way. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Genesis chapter 9. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Sorry, um, I will demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal, and from each man, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made man. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. 
I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. And then there's the sad account of Noah after the flood where he gets drunk, exposes his nakedness. We're not sure exactly what that means, but it doesn't sound good. Um, And it sort of ends sort of on a sad note, the story. Um, All right, so that's a lot of stuff to cover, right? And and I want to keep us focused on, on, on a few main points that I think bring out the thrust of the story and what the Bible is trying to communicate to us about the big picture story and how Jesus fits into this stuff. And the first point is this. The gospel always begins by giving us the bad news first. The fact is, we are worse than we think. And this is one of the classic passages that brings that out. If you're tempted to think of yourself as a pretty good guy or a pretty good girl who just needs a little uh, course correction every now and then, this passage sort of comes at you, comes right in your face and says, no, here's what God says about mankind. Every inclination of his heart was only evil all the time. Now, that's a very strong statement. Very strong statement. What, what does it mean? Well, a few things. First, it talks about the intensity and the extent of evil. The evil is great, and it fills the earth. It's really bad. Things are really bad. Um, what this means is we're going to need a big solution to the problem. Now, this is a, uh, you know, it says it very clearly and plainly here. But really, in some ways, the whole rest of the Bible is going to keep saying the same thing in all kinds of different ways. It's a big problem, and we need a big solution. And it's one of the major kind of themes you'll see all through the Old Testament is every time God raises up someone to deliver his people from their foolishness or the trouble they've gotten themselves into, really every one of those deliverers ends up having a fatal flaw. And so even with the deliverance, and we praise God for the deliverance, he's helped his people, he's sent someone to help. Uh, At the end of every one of the stories, you're left wanting someone more. You're left thinking there's surely got to be a better, more permanent solution to the problem. And this is the reason why, because sin is a big deal, and it affects Um, us in a really intense way. One of the other things that you get from this, related to this, is that sin is internal. Now, this is really important because a lot of people who are around Christians or maybe who've grown up in the church sometimes get a real misunderstanding about what the Bible means when it talks about sin. A lot of people don't even like to use that word anymore because it's gotten so much baggage. But here's what the Bible means by sin. It means every inclination of your heart is only evil all the time. It means that it's a big deal. 
a radical um, corruption of you, and it's an internal issue. The inclinations of the heart. Jesus picks up on this, right? So this, if you've ever read the Gospels or been around Christians, you've probably heard Jesus said it's not, you know, what's on the outside that defiles a man, and it's no, therefore no good just to clean the outside of the cup, that from the heart flow all the issues of life, and we need an internal heart transformation because the problem is rooted in your heart. Every inclination of the heart is only evil all the time. So the Bible's understanding of sin and the problem with us is not just that we do bad things. It's that we are rotten at the core. Right? This is why Jesus says, look, you can't expect a bad, rotten tree to produce good fruit. Don't be surprised when um, you do things that you're like, wow, never would have thought that I would have done that. A lot of people have this experience in college, don't they? Right? They grow up thinking, well, I could never be like that. Um, and it doesn't take very long after being in college to do things that you figure you never could have believed that you would do. And one of the reasons is because you're worse than you think you are. Uh, there's a guy I, I used to listen to a lot and, and really love. He's passed away now named Jack Miller. And he used to love to say all the time, cheer up, you're worse than you think you are. And that's sort of an oxymoronic statement, isn't it? Cheer up, you're worse than you think you are. What he means is, the first part of the good news is that you're worse than you think you are. Why is that good to tell people? Because if you don't know how serious the problem is, you're going to go through life thinking that you just need to try a little harder, that you just need to figure out what it is you need to do, you just need to tweak something here or there, and that's the worst kind of slavery I can imagine. To think that you could actually fix your life if you just tried a little harder or you just were a little more clever or a little more pretty or a little more talented. If you live under that lie, you will be in bondage. And so it's good news for God to say to us, no, it's really a lot worse than that. The problem is you're a traitor who hates God in your very depth of your heart. And unless something radical comes to change you from the inside out, you're without hope in the world. Now, this is good news, that God would come and tell us this. You know, the God of the Bible is not one who leaves men and women scratching their head, trying to figure out what is it that he wants. You ever had a boss like that or maybe a parent like that? You just wonder, what is it? that you want me to do. God is kind to tell us, I want you to be different. I want you to be changed because right now you have a radical, what Martin Luther called, I think, well one time, an inward curvature of the soul. And it's deep and it's in your heart. There's a um, a professor, Richard Lovelace. How many people have ever read or heard anything from this guy, Tim Keller? Have you ever, some of you guys? Yeah. So if you know Tim Keller, then you should know about Richard Lovelace, because Richard Lovelace was his theology professor um, up at Covenant Seminary, or sorry, at Gordon Conwell Seminary. And actually, uh, Keller recently blogged about this and about revival on Broadway. I don't know if any of you guys follow his, um, his blog, but um, he talked about Richard Lovelace and how one of the first classes he took when he showed up at seminary was this class from Richard Lovelace about revival and the idea about God waking up his people 
Um, and, and, and in that class, uh, Richard Lovelace talked about a lot of different things, about justification, sanctification, and sin. And he eventually published those lectures that had such a profound effect on Tim Keller and many others. He published that as a book called The Dynamics of Spiritual Life. It's not an easy read, but it's a great, it's, it's a great book, a lot of great stuff in there. And one of the most helpful parts is where he talks about sin. Because one of the things he says is, you'll never really understand the gospel, and it'll never be real power in your lives as long as you have a naive view of what sin is. And here's the way he says it. The structure of sin in the human personality is something far more complicated than the isolated acts and thoughts of deliberate disobedience commonly designated by the word. In other words, most evangelicals want to talk about sins. Is this a sin or is that a sin? Instead of talking about sin as something bigger and more organic um, than that. But here's what he says. He says, in the biblical definition... Sin cannot be limited to isolated instances or patterns of wrongdoing. It is something much more akin to the psychological term complex, an organic network of compulsive attitudes, beliefs, and behavior deeply rooted in our alienation from God. Sinful thoughts, words, and deeds flow forth from the darkened heart automatically and compulsively as water from a polluted fountain. And you may think, well, that's not very encouraging. And that doesn't seem like good news. It is good news because if you're, if you're hopelessly naive about what the problem is, you will never flee to the right solution. You will think that you can fix things yourself. You will think that all we need to do, and you hear all these sort of superficial solutions proposed in our world. Um, one of my favorites is we just need to talk. We just need to communicate better. So a professor up at Calvin College, Quentin Schultz, professor of communication up there, who says, you know, really, this is one of the most silly, naive um, things that people believe in our modern society. The reality is, if you communicated better, you probably would find that you hate people more, and they would find that they hate you. That a lot of our getting along is because we just don't communicate well at all. <laughs> really, honestly, if you take seriously what's going on in your heart. So, you know, just communicating better isn't going to fix the problems of our world. Just being better educated is not going to fix the problems of our world. You understand that Nazi Germany was the most educated society the world has ever seen, right? You understand this, right? German higher education was the envy of the world throughout the whole 19th century into the early 20th century, okay? So there's a lot of uh, sort of proposed solutions to the problems of our world that fall and are dashed upon the rocks because they don't take seriously what a big deal sin is. But we also see something else. We see God's patience. Now, a lot of people have said this, what is this contend with man for 120 years? Does that mean that God uh, is going to limit mankind's lifespan to 120 years? And we know people that have lived longer than that, so this can't be true. That's not what the Bible means here. What God is saying is, even though I'm grieved about the sin that's taken over mankind, I'm going to give them 120 more years. That's what it's that's what it's saying. I'm going to, to contend with them for 120 more years, and then I'm going to wipe things out. And you might say, well, then what was going on for 120 years? Well, 1 Peter and 2 Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness who preached, um, it says there, to the spirits who are now in prison. And a lot of people think that that means that, you know, Jesus went and preached to the, to the people in hell. 
That's not what the Bible means when it talks about that. It means that through Noah, Christ preached to the people in Noah's day. That's what Peter says. That Noah was a preacher of righteousness, not just a guy who built an ark. And God had him preach for 120 years, even though he was grieved, even though he knew he knew that that wasn't going to be enough. But we see God's patience. We also see his heart. Do you understand how remarkable it is that God tells his people that my heart is grieved? And yet he also is committed to holiness. Do you see, you, like God lets you in on the turmoil that goes on in his heart. His love for his people. He's grieved over sin in the world. He's committed to holiness, but there's almost like this, this sort of tension in the heart of God. There are various places where it comes out. Jeremiah, it comes out in really striking ways, but it's here too. So again, what a remarkable thing that God lets you in on even sort of this turmoil uh, in his own heart that is described as being grieved. But then look at where it goes next. God is going to destroy the world. He's committed to that, but... Noah finds favor or grace in God's eyes. And the big question is why. And how you answer this question has a lot to do with how, whether you're going to understand the Noah story or not. Because if you take this Noah story to be basically Noah was a good guy, everybody else was a sinner, and therefore, you know, he got blessed because he was a good guy, and now... Um, what we need to do is we need to try to be like Noah. Even when there's sort of all this crazy pagan non-believers all around us doing all kinds of crazy stuff, we should sort of build an ark and sort of hide out and stay pure, and then God will bless us and save us, even though the rest of the world's going to hell. There's a guy, Walter Kern, who wrote an article for GQ a while back. Um, fascinating article, really great article. I, I recommend it to people all the time. I don't normally read GQ. Somebody pointed it out to me. Um, but it's a great article, and he talks about his experience. He basically, for 30 days, completely lived in the Christian subculture. He's not a Christian at all, um, but he decided for 30 days he would only um, listen to Christian music. He would only watch Christian television. He would only watch Christian aerobic videos for his workout. He would only go to Christian websites for his news. He would only eat Christian food. And you may think, what in the world is that? Well, he found a book, What Would Jesus Eat? And he followed it religiously, right? And after the end of 30 days, he wrote about what it was like to live in this Christian subculture. And he called it the ARK culture, A-R-K. And he said, you know, there was one day when the headline on Crosswalk.com, which is where he was getting his news, was pastor fined for rebuking a lewd woman, L-E-W-D. Do you even know how to spell that word, lewd? Pastor fined for rebuking a lewd woman. That was the most important headline of that day on Crosswalk.com. All the other things going on in the world, the most important thing for Christians to know that day, the top headline, was that it was a pastor fined for rebuking a lewd woman. And Walter Kern says about this, he goes, you know, um, a world in which pastors rebuke lewd women, a world in which the word lewd is even used, um, must be a comforting small town little existence. And I'm tempted to sort of jump off the ark and find out what's going on in the real world. But why spoil the illusion that really nothing worse is going on in the world than that pastors are getting rebuked for finding or being fined for rebuking lewd women, right? I think that's a very cutting 
criticism that Christians need to take to heart. So what are we to say about Noah? Is he an example for us that we should all, like, find an ark? No. And, and you know, what's interesting here is if you put the, 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 the sort of paragraph break in the wrong place, you really misunderstand this passage. Um, and here's, here's what you need to understand. Verse 9 starts with this phrase. In the Hebrew, it's the word toledoth. It's translated, this is the account of. It's a phrase, actually, that appears 10 times in the book of Genesis, and it always is the start of a new section. So what you have here, much like the creation, where you don't have two different creation accounts that have been sloppily edited together, you first have uh, sort of the big picture, and then you have zooming in. That's what you have here. You have the big picture, and then you have in verse 9 the account of Noah. And so verse 9 is not the reason that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 8 actually goes with verses 5, 6, and 7. All the inclinations of man are only evil all the time, but in spite of that, Noah found favor with God. It's much like Enoch. Everybody lived so and so many years, and then they died so many, so many years, and they died, but Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more. And you go, what? Wait a sec. How did that happen? And you're not given an answer. Similar structure here, but... In spite of the sin, in spite of the fact that God is grieved over the way sin has taken over his good creation, Noah found favor. How the heck did he find favor? We know as the story goes on, he's not a perfect guy. There's that whole little you know, story about getting drunk and exposing his nakedness, right, and bringing shame on his whole family. Yet, you know, he's not a perfect guy. Verse 9 is saying this is a basic summary of his life. Now, it's important that you understand something here. When the Old Testament uses this word righteous and uses the word blameless, two different Hebrew words, they mean something that I think a lot of Christians misunderstand. They don't mean morally perfect without fault. Every Hebrew scholar will tell you this. It's just hard to translate those words into English equivalents that have the same connotation. But what it basically means is this. He's basically a morally upright guy. If in the Hebrew language you want to say, Reed's a good guy, you would say that he's righteous. Some, you know, in some culture, like surfer culture, we still say that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, maybe it's coming back again, making a resurgence. But that's, that's what's saying. It's not like the same concept that you have where the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you. And so when God looks at you, he sees Christ who has perfectly obeyed the law and you get credit for that. That's an important theological concept that Paul talks about in the New Testament. Um, that's not what's being said here. It's not. What's being said here is that he's a, a morally upright guy. Here's the way, um, you know... Um, well, uh, John Wenham, who has a great commentary on um, Genesis, puts it this way. Um, there's a progressive buildup in the way that Noah is described here in verse 9. He was a good man, righteous, like the majority of the Israelites. More than that, he was blameless. Blameless is a, is, means that he really is very holy. He lives a very um, holy life. It doesn't mean he's perfect. It means... But it means, you know, something even more than just being a good guy. Um, and then finally it says that he walked with God. This is something only said of Enoch and Noah. So it means, you know, he really is a good guy. He really is a good guy. 
But that's not why he gets on the ark. Because he's still part of the people who are sinful. And Noah knows that. You know how we know that Noah knows that? Because what's the first thing he does when he, when he gets delivered from the ark? He offers a sacrifice. He's grateful to God. He doesn't say, well, God's about time. You know? I mean, after all, you had no right really to coop me up in that ark anyway. No, he understands that he was saved by grace and he needs to, he needs to sort of, you know, reverence God for that. Um, now, what's, what's the whole imagery of the ark? What's the ark about here? Um, in, the, in the whole idea of the ark, there, there's one basic point that you need to get. Well, two, two points, really. One is the importance of fleeing the coming wrath of God in God's appointed way. The, the, what's referenced here often is the scrupulousness uh, of Noah's obedience. He builds it exactly like God says. This is a theme that comes all through the Bible. It's not enough, um, God says, to just say, well, you know, I like Jesus. He's a good guy. No, you need to trust in him, right? You need to flee God's wrath, which is coming to those who have turned away from God in God's appointed way. There's no salvation outside of the ark. Do you know actually there are three arks in the Bible? You know this? There's three arks. You may know about one. You may know the Ark of the Covenant. You know that imagery, the Ark of the Covenant? You've seen the movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know? But you may not know the other ark, because the English translations don't, don't render it ark, but it's the same Hebrew word. And it's the basket that Moses was placed in when he was a little baby, and the Pharaoh was going to have all the Hebrew babies killed. He's placed in an ark. In every one of these um, occurrences, salvation comes through an ark. And, and it means the idea that that there is sort of a safe place that you can hide. But the second thing it means is that salvation comes basically um, by trusting God wholeheartedly. One of the things about an ark is that they don't have rudders. The, The imagery of the ark is when you throw yourself into the ark, when you put yourself in the ark, you put yourself at God's disposal. You don't get to dictate the terms. You don't get to be in charge of where you go. This is true of Moses. He's just set afloat on the Nile. And God in his providence delivers him uh, into a family that he never could have imagined. I was thinking about that today. You know, this, did you you all know know that, uh, did you guys know that Oprah found her long lost sister that she didn't even know she had? Did you guys hear about this story? Like her mom gave up this baby girl um, that, that um, is young, younger than Oprah, but Oprah never knew about her. Her mom never told her. And about three years ago, this girl tracked down Oprah and figured out who she was. And I was thinking, this lady has a couple kids. So now, you know, I, I was thinking, like, if there's one thing you know about Oprah, it's that gifts are her love language. <laughs> and I was just thinking about, like, these, uh, her niece and nephew that never knew that Oprah was their aunt. And how Christmas is never going to be the same. Yeah, right? Yeah, and so there, but there's that, that idea like, you know, like no, Moses just gets put into a basket. He's as good as dead. To set a little baby in a reed basket afloat on a river full of crocodiles 
is not what seems to make sense for how you're going to survive. It's a really desperate, hopeless kind of thing. And yet God superintends and delivers this baby into, uh, into the life of, of being raised in a palace. Right? It's crazy. So it is. Like Noah, they shut up. God shuts them up in the ark. It's fascinating. God closes it up, and they just are set adrift. But it says in the passage that God remembers them. Their hope is not that they get to steer the ark, that they get to sort of figure out where's a good place to land, and they're not in control or in charge in any sort of way. And that's what the life of faith is feels like. I don't know if you figured that out yet. I don't know if you like that. Most of us don't like that, but that's kind of the way salvation is. You throw yourself on God's mercy and you say, do with me what you will. I mean, this is the whole idea that you are not your own, Paul says, you've been bought with a price. And as long as you think that God owed you salvation, like that just doesn't make any sense anymore. What the Bible says is no. You've been saved by sheer grace. And the ark is a beautiful picture of that. They had no hope. They had no ability to steer, and yet God delivers them, even though they're as good as dead. And the New Testament actually takes this imagery. Peter picks up on this imagery and talks about how baptism is like a kind of death. It's like a a watery death. The ark is like a coffin. Do you understand? They basically are put into like a big wooden coffin and set afloat as the flood covers the earth. They're basically dead, and then they come out again. It's like Jesus put into the tomb for three days, and then he's raised again. That's the imagery of baptism, right? You're, you're dead, and then you come to new life. You come back. You're not the same person. That's why the Christian church often has, has incorporated giving people their names at baptism, Right? We ask, what is the Christian name of this child? It's all that imagery. To be a Christian means that you've died and been brought to new life. And that's what Noah and his family experienced. Salvation comes through death. And then we get God's promise. And this is my favorite part. God makes a promise, a covenant with Noah. And it's interesting, this is the first time the word covenant appears in the Bible, but it's in a form of the Hebrew that means the covenant is reestablished. And so you have to go, where, what is this idea of covenant? Covenant is like a living love bond that God has made. It's deeper than just him saying, yeah, I think I'll do this for you. No, it's a pledge. And the first pledge was in the garden. And now it's repeated. And you see the imagery, like God's purpose for his world has not been thwarted by sin. Adam, uh, Adam and Eve were told to multiply and, and flourish and spread and fill the earth and subdue it. And Noah is given the same task. In other words, the gospel and salvation and grace is not God's plan B. Noah is not God's plan B. No, what God is doing through Noah is what he's always intended to do, to bring his glory throughout the whole cosmos. And he's going to use his people, saved by his grace, to do that. And so they're given... They're, they're given this, the same commands. They've not changed. Um, and notice this, that the covenant is not just with human beings, or, and it's not just with human souls. It's with all of the created things. God cares about the whole creation. And then this part about God laying down his battle bow. And you say, well, where do you see that? 
Well, you see it in this idea of the rainbow. Rainbow. My wife said, you know, I should, I should try and get a hold of that guy, you know, with the double rainbow all the way guy, and say, you know, he's like, what does it mean? Well, I, we know what it means. We know what the rainbow is there to say. But I don't know if every Christian understands this, because the, the, the word translated bow, it doesn't say rainbow in the Hebrew text. It says bow. I will set my bow in the clouds. And the bow, the Hebrew word for bow, is not like a little bow you put in your hair. It's the word for a battle bow. And so the sign that God gives for how will you know that I really mean what I say when I say that I won't destroy the earth by flood again? You imagine what it was like every time it rained after for Noah? You know? I don't know. I like that. I would think post-traumatic stress probably plagued him the rest of his life. And yet God says, whenever it rains, there's going to be this sign. And notice, it's interesting. God says it's a sign that will remind me of my covenant, like God could forget. But in a sense, it's like God is saying, when you see the rainbow, know that I see it too. That I'm remembering my commitment. And may that encourage you. What is the sign? The sign is a battle bow that's cocked. The battle bow, the Hebrew battle bow is like as tall as I am. It's like six feet tall. And it's not at rest, the sign, right? It's not just a straight line in the sky. It's a battle bow that's cocked and aimed not at man who deserves it, but at God himself. Do you see this imagery? God is saying, my promise that I won't destroy the earth by flood again, the sign of that is a cocked battle bow that I'm aiming at myself. Now, that's surely a strange thing to do, isn't it? But that's exactly what the promise is. Because, remember, the heart of God, I'm grieved that sin has entered the world. But you know what? Sin is still in the world after the flood. Because Noah brought it with him. Like, what you get is, here's this salvation, here's this picture of new life, and yet sin is still with them. One of the first things he does is gets drunk and exposes his nakedness and brings shame upon his whole family. Right? Yeah. So the, the, the ark doesn't fix the problem, but the sign that God gives is pointing to the solution to the problem. Because what you need to understand is this gets picked up in other places in the Bible. I want to read you two passages. One of them we looked at already in Hosea. But there's a passage in Isaiah chapter 54, verses 9 and 10, where God says this. To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So here, you know, this solemn promise, God is still remembering it there in Isaiah. And then Hosea chapter 2, 18 and 19, we use it as a call to worship. Here you have the image of the battle bow being let, sort of set down and linked with God's promise to betroth himself, to marry himself to his people. In that day, there's a day coming, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Do you see the, the connection with Noah here? Um, bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. 
I will betroth you, God says to his people, to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I'll betroth you in faithfulness and you acknowledge the Lord. In the rainbow is God's pledge that he says in Hosea he's going to keep, not just to end the sin problem, but to marry us to himself. Because what God created us for in the garden was not just to be sinless so that God could look over and say, yeah, it's cool, glad you're not sinning, great. No, God made us to walk in the cool of the day with him, to be close to his heart. And so it's not enough just to remove sin. It's, it's important that he marry himself to us. Do you understand that the battle bow the battle bow was loosed upon Christ at the cross. That the reason that God can promise to never destroy the earth again is because he destroyed Jesus. The battle bow has been loosed. It's been fired. And it ripped the Son of Man apart in your place. This, this, is, this is amazing, right? Let me, let me, there's one more thing I want to point out to you here. In Genesis 6, 5, um, man's evil is given as the reason for the flood. But look at Genesis eight twenty one. It says, I won't destroy again. I won't curse the ground again. And, and the NIV obscures this connection because it says, even though every inclination of his heart is evil. Because the, the NIV knows that if they translate it the way it says in the Hebrew, people are going to read the Bible and be like, wait, chapter 8, verse 21 seems like a contradiction of chapter 6, verse 5, because in chapter 6, verse 5, God says, I won't, I, I'm going to destroy the world because man's heart is evil. And then in chapter 8, he says, I'm not going to describe the world because, same Hebrew word, man is evil. <laughs> like, that's a blatant contradiction, isn't it? How do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile that? Again, God is showing through the flood, even though destruction is deserved, it's not going to fix the sin problem. Like I've showed that sin deserves death, but the problem is still there. I'm not going to destroy the earth again because sin must be dealt with in a different way. So we learn that, you know, that God is committed to the sin problem, even though the flood doesn't fix it. What will we say here um, in conclusion? Um, it's fascinating here when you, th- you see this whole thing about the covenant, how the manslayers, whether they be man or beast, will be put to death. This is one of the bases. You need to wrestle with this text when you think about the death penalty. Uh, I'm not going to get into all the moral ins and outs and But this is a passage that needs to be grappled with because what God is saying is if the image of God that I have put in mankind is destroyed, there's responsibility for that. And that I will hold, whether it's beast or man, whoever slays man because of the image of God that's in man will be held responsible. So what's God saying? God's saying is that human life is precious, not just by itself, but also because the seed line is important to be preserved. And even the animals get warned about killing human beings. Um, Second conclusion point is that judgment doesn't cure sin. There has to be another solution. 
And I, I think, again, we often think that judgment is going to fix our sin because we beat ourselves up all the time, hoping that we'll change. But Romans 2, 4 says it's the kindness and mercy of God that leads to repentance. And Christians, we need to remember that more. Um, finally, Noah is preserved so that the seed line of the Messiah will be preserved. Um, there's this amazing thing where it talks about how we need to get into the tents of Shem. Mo- Noah has three sons, but we find as this story develops that it's through one of them that hope will come. So you see, again, the, the, the story, like that's not just a random detail. You know, it's an important detail so that you can see that God is saying the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And now we're finding that even though Noah has three sons, it's through the one son's line that salvation will come. And the other sons are not going to be saved just because they're Noah's sons. They need to get into the tents of Shem. It's a very murky, mysterious statement at this point. But later you're going to find that Shem is in the genealogy of Christ himself. And God is already, God is, God was not improvising when Jesus was born. It was planned before the foundation of the world. And you see that here. God is preserving the seed line until the day will come when he will pick up the battle bow and destroy his son on the cross. And that is the ultimate solution to how he's going to keep this promise, even though mankind's heart is only evil all the time. God is teaching here about the punishment that sin deserves, but he's also teaching us that punishment, destroying mankind, is not enough to deal with the sin problem. He's going to send one who will be crushed, and in so doing, crush the head of the serpent. Let's pray.